Let us pray. So, Father, we give you thanks that Jesus is our shepherd and our king and our Lord, even as we celebrate this day. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you here this morning. It's been a rather busy weekend here at All Saints Church. Um, our annual diocesan synod was Friday night, a wonderful Eucharist here at the church with Bishop John and all the clergy and Bishop-elect Chris was here as well. And then um, business meetings and, and morning prayer yesterday. Um, we went all the way till four o'clock and this was Bishop John's last synod as our diocesan bishop. And so um, a lot of mixed emotions yesterday, but it was a wonderful day. And um, thank you to all of the folks who, from All Saints who worked with our diocesan staff on various responsibilities around the building to make things go so smoothly and feed everyone and all the things that took place. Thank you so very much. Two things I want to just mention that I'll be mentioning a lot more going forward um, as we go into the new year, but I want to go ahead and ask you all to get these on your calendar. First, on Saturday, January 28th, there will be a reception to honor Bishop John and Meg at True Road Church at 2 p.m. That's a Saturday, the day before our business meeting here at the church. And would encourage you to plan on that now and then. The other really, really big event, and I want to encourage everyone to try to get to this, is our consecration of our new bishop, which will take place on February 18th at 10 a.m. at the Falls Church Anglican. And everyone is invited to that. And I would encourage you to come. I mean, for, for most folks, um, this will be the only bishop consecration you ever experience firsthand and in person in your life. And it's a, it's a wonderful, beautiful service. Um, and I just would encourage you to put that on your calendar and plan on being there for that. Well, today, even as I mentioned, as I greeted everyone, is the Feast of Christ the King, the last Sunday on the calendar in the church year. Next Sunday is New Year's Day on the church calendar, the first Sunday of Advent. But today's the Feast of Christ the King, and um, for, because of that and observing that, we have gold and white on the altar. Vestments are gold and white. The pyramids are gold and white. Um, symbolizing the purity, joy, and kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ. In these topsy-turvy times in which we live, some voices would claim that the idea of kingship is offensive. That somehow a God who is king, a God who is an absolute sovereign ruler, is incongruent with a God of love and a God of grace. In other words, the two don't go together. Yet such thinking, including when it may be uttered at times from pulpits of some churches across our nation, is absolutely false. Such ideas really are rooted in secular thinking and sentimental human notions rather than in biblical truth. Yes, indeed, God is imminent. God, through Christ and by the work of the Holy Spirit, continuing, has come near to us. And God is deeply personal and interested in all of our needs and concerns. But God is also transcendent and is king and above and beyond all of his creation. And we need to be careful as Christians, especially in the world and the culture in which we live, to not 
to make sure that our understandings of things like love, truth, grace, justice, mercy, and other things of this nature which, which have their root and their essence in God, we need to make sure that our understanding of these things is anchored in God's truth and not in the culture around us. Biblical Christianity is not some sentimental, sappy spirituality where we treat or view Jesus more like a boyfriend than we do the savior of the world and the king of glory. And when people recoil or bristle at the truth that Jesus is king, I believe it often has more to do with our sinful notions of human autonomy and independence and self-sufficiency than anything else because it's certainly not biblical truth. The 19th century British poet William Ernest Henley wrote in his famous poem Invictus, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. We human beings like to think that way, don't we? Let's be honest. All of us sometimes like to think that way. And often we want to think or people want to think that we are in complete control and nothing could be further from the truth. We want to think that we're in complete control and that we as human beings are the ultimate measure of all things. It's really the core thinking of secular humanism that man or human beings is the measure of all things and that there's nothing greater or more powerful or beyond us as that measure. However, despite what the world may tell us or claim in its wishful, sinful thinking, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is indeed king. You can say amen to that nice and loud because it is eternally true. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. And there is nothing that human beings can say or do to alter this eternal reality. That Jesus is king is indeed the testimony of Holy Scripture. Hear these words of St. Paul from Philippians chapter 2, familiar verses. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, St. Paul continues, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And then in Revelation chapter 19, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. 
His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head are, on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In today's reading from St. Luke's Gospel, we see Jesus' kingship expressed in ways that completely confound the world, those who see things through the eyes of the flesh. And in the events of Jesus' death, we see God's divine plan unfolding. As New Testament scholar Bishop N.T. Wright writes, the cross of Christ marks the inauguration of Christ establishing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And then he continues, what a paradox that God was already king of the world and had already become so in a dramatic new way through the work, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. All of this is confounding to the world, yet earthly-minded people played a role in declaring Christ's king kingship, even without having a clue that this is what they were doing. In fact, they thought they were doing the complete opposite. If you ever, and I tried to think of a concrete illustration to give that wouldn't be critical of someone and I just couldn't come up with one, but have you ever encountered someone who said something that they thought they were saying just the opposite or they spoke something and it's like, yeah, that is more true than you have any idea. You kind of, kind of know what I'm saying? Yeah, we're, where they think they're saying something completely different. Well, that's really what a lot of these folks here in Luke 23 were doing, folks that I've called unwilling prophets. The enemies of God in Luke's gospel, ironically, in their scorn of Jesus, the eternal Son of God, affirm the truth that he is indeed king. Looking at Luke chapter 3, there are several groups of people, I believe, who come into play with this. First, there is the crowd in general. Those who stood by watching the grotesque spectacle the crucifixion was. Now clearly some of the people there were followers of Jesus or people who at least had sympathy for them. Verses 48 and 49 of Luke 23 affirm this. Where we read, And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. But there were clearly, certainly others there in the crowd who were there for the spectacle. And that, that kind of imagery brings to mind to me um, the similar horrificness of lynchings in our own country's history, in, especially in the second half of the 19th and first half of the 20th century. And if you've ever done any reading on the history of these horrible, tragic, sinful events, and you see photographs, which they're, they're horrible and they're grotesque, but there will be crowds of people gathered around in an almost carnival-like atmosphere in many cases, people smiling, sometimes serving refreshments, and here's this person they just murdered hanging there. 
It's horrible. It's grotesque. It's a spectacle. It's utterly sinful. Beyond the gawkers, there are also those who are the enemies of truth, of who Jesus is, who unwittingly attested to this truth and full identity of who Jesus is. And we find, I think, three distinct groups of these people, people who fit into this category in today's gospel reading. The first group are the Jewish rulers or leaders in verse 35. They stood by and they scoffed at Jesus. And Luke here is precise and especially intentional in his wording. Because in their scoffing, these rulers are actually pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment of that which was prophesied in Psalm 22, verses 6 through 8, a psalm that we recite every year on Monday, Thursday, as the altar is stripped at the conclusion of the Monday Thursday service where we read, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Beyond this, the mocking of these Jewish leaders involves questions and uses the terms Christ of God, Messiah, and chosen one. Terms that reveal the true identity of who Jesus is. The Christ, the promise and anointed deliverer sent from God. And Jesus, God's chosen one. The only means of eternal salvation and deliverance. Deliverance from sin. And they taunt Jesus for this regal claim, but they miss the truth. Because for them, the genuineness of who Jesus is is based on whether he acts to deliver himself from this terrible circumstance or not. Let him save himself if he is the Christ. And they miss the reality that the deliverance that Jesus brings is for them, potentially, and that his deliverance is selfless and can only be accomplished by him fully enduring the agony of the cross and seeing that agony and suffering through to its conclusion. A suffering Messiah was incomprehensible to them. It is equally incomprehensible to many people in our day. And even we as believers sometimes diminish this reality the horrificness of the cross and the suffering Messiah in one way or another because it is exceedingly unpleasant for us to ponder. It's not easy to ponder the fact, the reality that the sinless Son of God, the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, suffered and died because of me. That Jesus Christ suffered and died for my sin. And I think of the words of the hymn, Ah, Holy Jesus, which I never get through singing without crying. Where in verse 2 we read, Who was the guilty? Who brought this upon thee? Alas, my treason, Jesus hath undone thee. Twas I, Lord Jesus, I it was denied thee. I crucified thee. The second group of unwilling prophets are the Roman soldiers. Those who were assigned the task of nailing Jesus to the cross and standing guard until he died. And these Romans, these Gentiles, 
mock him as the king of the Jews. Look at verse 36. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. They offered him cheap, sour, poor quality wine. And as New Testament scholar Raymond Brown notes, only when we hear the words of the soldiers does it become clear that their offering of cheap wine is a burlesque gift to the king. They could read the titles before them over Jesus' head. Those titles have been hung on the cross above him. Their mocking is derision of Jesus' true identity and derision of his kingship. And again, pointing back to this event being the fulfillment of what was foretold in Psalm 22. Neither these Jewish leaders nor these Gentile Roman soldiers believe that Jesus can fulfill what he has said that he was there to fulfill what he has claimed. And yet nothing is further from the truth. And even in their sinful and wicked behaviors and in nailing him to the cross, they are complicit in his enthronement as king of kings and lord of lords. As we think about that, we need to ponder Again, this unpleasant reality that Christ bore our sins, that the penalty, the judgment for my sin and your sin was placed upon him in our place on the cross. We find the final unwilling prophet in verse 39. And here we read of the unrepentant thief, thief who echoes the words of the Jewish leaders. Look at verse 39 with me. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And in this blasphemous remark, ironically, he still leaves himself an out. If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. And he's oblivious to the reality that as a dying bandit and a criminal, his only hope of deliverance is by the fact that Jesus remains on the cross. Despite the scoffing, despite the mockery, despite the taunts, there Jesus remained accomplishing his mission as the eternal son of God and praying for all of them. Even as the soldiers right at his feet cast lots for his garments, his only earthly possessions right there in front of him. Everything is the exact opposite of what the carnal and earthly minded person expected. And even confronted with the reality of the resurrection three days later, God's vindication of Jesus and all that he alone could accomplish, they still didn't believe. They still rejected his kingship. Despite their mocking and despite the taunts, brothers and sisters, Jesus is indeed the Christ of God. He is the chosen one. And Jesus is indeed king, not only king of kings, but Lord of lords. 
And he accomplished all of this for you and me. And he invites us by the salvation that he offers us and by what he has done on our behalf. He invites us to submit ourselves to his kingship and to his lordship. Yes, when we come to him as savior, but again and again, day after day. And as we submit ourselves to him, and as we surrender our lives to him and let go of trying to fix things and control things and do things on our own, we experience the blessings and the joy and the peace that come through serving him. And then through him and through our submission to him and the reflection of who he is as the Christ, the eternal son of God through our lives, the glories and the beauty of his eternal kingdom are demonstrated to those around us so that God, too, through us and through our witness, invites them in, invites them to become citizens of his eternal kingdom, his kingdom which shall not end, his kingdom which shall not be overturned. Let us pray. Father, we give you great thanks for Jesus, the eternal King of glory, from all eternity past, that he gave himself for us, that he came as a human being, as a man, and he lived a sinless life so that we could become heirs of this eternal kingdom, citizens of the kingdom of the Most High God. So Lord, even now, speak to us, I pray, and show us where we need to surrender more fully, where we need to more fully submit ourselves to the kingship of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that he may be King and Lord in every way, in every area of our lives, as we surrender to you, as we surrender to the priorities of your eternal kingdom and are untethered more and more from the stuff and the junk and the things of the kingdom of this, kingdoms of this world. I pray that your light would shine through us and that we would truly be ambassadors of your eternal kingdom, that many in our community, in our nation, through our lives would come to know, experience Jesus as King and Lord and Savior. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.